those who are here for the first time, we're going through the Bible in two years, so which means we do about a dozen chapters a week. Everyone reads the chapters during the week, and then we come on Sunday and we um, kind of do a survey of them. And we're in the book of Job now. Uh, we started it last week. We'll be on it... After this week, we'll be on it one and a half more weeks. Uh, kind of a flying flying trip through a, a major book. Um, last time we looked at the prologue, the first two chapters, and then we and then we did um, Job cursing the day of his birth, and almost the entire first round in the dispute. Um, let's first just review the uh, the prologue. Um, the question that God and Satan are debating is, why does Job obey God? And uh, God says it's because Job uh, respects God for who he is. And Satan says it's because God pays Job to obey him. <laughs> and, and that's a question a lot of people still ask today. Um, and, I, and I think a lot of Christians don't even understand it properly. Uh, there, there, there's certainly a lot of a lot of believers whose attitude is that um, God won't let bad things happen to His people. And and you have some kind of extreme views that I've heard of a doctrine called the name it and claim it doctrine. You know, whatever you want, want just tell God and you claim it from Him. Um, and certainly, the book of Job would, would show that that doesn't always work. <laughs> In fact, for most of the book of Job, if Job could have named something and claimed it, what would it have been? Yes. He wanted to die. He just repeatedly asked God, why won't you let me die? What's the point? And God didn't even grant him that request. But in, this, in the first two chapters, Satan attempts to prove that um, Job is self-centered. And of course, Satan's view is basically all humans are self-centered. That was a slander against all humans. And of course, it was slandered against God because He was saying, no one will worship you, God, unless you paid them to do it. I mean, that's, that's His attitude about, about the character of God. And by the end of chapter 2, Job has proven that to be false. And the question doesn't come up again in the book. Satan doesn't even come up again in the book. Um, but Job's problems are not over. And, and really, for even though Job has proved the point at the end of chapter 2, he continues to prove it by his, uh, his arguments that he makes in the rest of the book. He shows in the book that he considers God to be righteous and he considers that God is worthy to be served, even though he has some really serious questions about why God is doing things. <laughs> so... That, that got us started with the prologue. And then the first chapter gets us into the first chapter of the dispute. The, the three friends just wait for seven days. Don't say a word until Job speaks. And then when Job does speak, it's all about how horrible his life is. I wish I was never, never been born, is what he says. Um, and that then provides an opening for the three friends. Job opened it up so now they can they can offer him some counseling. And um, from their perspective, and we've got to look at that, 
the rest of the book, most of the rest of the book is concerned with this one question, why is Job suffering? And the friends reason out through a set of propositions, which they never put in this exact order, but um, if you read through their different arguments, this is what you get. God is just. And God punishes the wicked by making them suffer. God never makes the righteous suffer because that would be unjust. And God is just. Conclusion, since Job is suffering, he must be wicked. To say otherwise would be to make God unjust. And that's a very important point. Um, The more Job proclaims his innocence to his friends, the more convinced they are that he's a very wicked person. Because if Job is innocent, by their reasoning, that makes God unjust. If Job is saying God is unjust, have you ever found a more wicked person than Job? <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's how they reason this thing through. I put a few other points down here. I mentioned that heaven and hell were not known in Job's day. Um, and so Job's concept of an afterlife was, was quite vague and, and generally rather unpleasant. We're going to see some uh, a, a few steps forward in, in, in this morning's lesson in, in terms of his thinking about the afterlife. But people did not know about heaven and hell. And so that the answer to this question had to come in this life. I did mention that although a lot of people think that heaven and hell solved the problem, I don't believe it. I think we are still left today with the same issue is God fair or not? And I think we're going to have to accept the same answer that God gave to Job, which I'm not going to give away the answer. We've got to wait two more weeks for that. Yeah, Tracy. I was just wondering, how do we make God Well, I knew a couple years ago, I knew a couple whose eight-year-old or ten-year-old son got a tumor around the nerves leading into his brain. And I visited him in the hospital many times as this boy got worse and worse and he finally died. They quit coming to church. They said, we can't serve a God that would let our son die like that. Weren't they saying God was unjust? Yeah. It still happens today. People still people still make God unjust today. They're blaming something. Yeah, they blame Him. Well, now... They're right in that God did that. Uh, and, and I think a lot of Christians make a mistake when they say, you know, don't say God did that. Satan did that. But in, in the book of Job, Job never knows anything about Satan. He says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And, and the writer says, Job never sinned with it in saying this. So to say that the Lord caused that 10-year-old boy to die is true. But to say then that God must be unjust, that's a big problem. <clears throat> yes, L.A. Nothing could happen without God authorizing it. Exactly. I mean, Jesus said even a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from God. Every, every single thing that happens in this whole world is because of God. So what's the difference if we... How do we know that Satan's different versus what God does? It's always God. <laughs> well, both are true. Uh, 
Yet Satan certainly does things. So you can't do it without permission. Right. And if God gives permission, God has to have good in mind. God never does anything without there being a good a good end in mind. So that now we can argue that maybe God wouldn't have let this happen to Job if if Satan hadn't challenged God. But God didn't have to do that. It was entirely in God's hands. God did it because He would get more glory by doing it than by not doing it. And Job benefited by the fact that God did it. In the end, Job benefited. I don't mean the fact that he got more kids and got more money, but he got closer to God as a result. And and there's a real sense in which the only way any of us get closer to God is through hard times. Um, I, I hope none of us ever have to go through what Job did, but um, most most any progress we make in our understanding about God and our relationship to God comes through going through difficult times. If God paid us like Satan said, we'd never get very close to Him. <laughs> we would just fall in love with the things He gives us instead of falling in love with God, which was which is His goal. Uh, Alright, so um, let me just briefly summarize what we did last time. We, we covered chapter 3, and then in the argument, Eliphaz starts, as he always did, we've got three of these rounds, and it's always in the same order. Eliphaz is always the first one. And, and Eliphaz is really very nice in this first speech. I mean, I, I, it's unfortunate, his conclusion, because it's based upon a misunderstanding. But He's, he's, he's trying to help Job. I mean, he, he sees Job as a sinner in need of counsel. And, and he, he says, you know, in the past, you know, you, you've helped others with your wise counsel. And, and, but now this is happening to you. And, and what you need to do is turn to God and, and, and ask, ask God for forgiveness and, and He'll restore you. And it's a very nice... And, and it would be a wonderful speech if it was true, <laughs> if Job was a sinner, it would have been perfect. Um, but because every one of these guys, because they, they because they misunderstand how God's justice works, they're giving Job advice that he cannot take. I mean, how can you, how can you repent of something you haven't done? So in chapter in chapter six, Job gives his his first response to these guys. And um, mainly in that chapter, he's saying, you know, God, let me die. <laughs> he doesn't have a whole lot to say to these friends. Just please let me die. Um, though at the end of verse 24, he says, teach me and I will be silent and show me how I have erred. You know, you guys say I've said, well, well, just show me what I've done wrong and then it will be a big help. In chapter 7, he talks about how pointless life seems to be. And of course, in, in, in his suffering, it certainly was. Um, then in chapter 8, we have the second guy in the, in, of the friends, Bildad. This is Job chapter 8. Um, he comes along on stronger. And I don't know if it's because that's just his personality or maybe it's because Job didn't repent after what Eliphaz said. And so, um, in verse 3, he says, does God pervert justice? So that's the main point. God is just. If you're suffering, Job, 
it's got to be because you're wicked. Because otherwise, if you're innocent, God would be unjust. He says, if your son sins against him, then he delivered them into the power of their transgression. Yeah, he says if, but what he, really what he means is, they did. <laughs> I mean, what a terrible thing to put upon this guy. Here, he's lost all ten of his children at one time. And now Bildad is saying, yeah, it's because they were wicked. You know, what a, what a thing to say at the funeral, as we would say. Um, but they keep going on about how, look, wicked people get punished. And they, each of their speeches, they're going to emphasize this. Wicked people are punished. Um, then in, in chapter 9, Job comes back. Um, and he's saying, well, you know, all of these things you're saying, I, you know, I understand this, but um, how can a man, he says in verse 2, how can a man be in the right before God? He does not mean by that, how can a man be sinless? What he means is, if, if a man will go to court with God, how could he ever be proven to be right? Because there's nobody above God, there's no judge above him. Um, and, and that's the big challenge, and, that, and he, that's the thing he faces in this whole dispute. How can anyone argue against God? God appears to be being unfair to me, Job says, but how can I go before Him and argue the case? He's way too powerful for me. There's nobody above Him. And, and at one point, he talks about how there's no ump- umpire to lay his hand on, on both of us. And that is a, a major issue in the whole Bible. Because how many people are there today whose view of God is one of a mean man up there just trying to stop people from having any fun, and yet they know that he's so powerful they better do what he says or else you know they're going to get zapped. I mean, how many people have that view of God? And, and God being all-powerful and yet loving these feeble creatures he's created, how can he express His character to them, His very presence just terrifies them. And of course, the New Testament gives the answer. God God has the solution, but it wasn't given in Job's day. Um, So then in in chapter 11, we have the third guy, Zophar, who who speaks, and he's he's even rougher than the first two guys. And he says in verse 5, would that God might speak and open His lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom. For sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. <laughs> He's saying, God hasn't even punished you as much as you deserve. Job, you're so wicked. Uh, poor, I mean, you just have to feel bad for Job. I mean, he's, he's sitting there with all these boils covering him and just everyone disrespect him. And these three friends are trying to help him and they're just accusing him of all these awful things. And it even gets worse in, in this morning's lesson. And so Job gets pretty rough with them coming back in chapter 12, verse 2. Truly then, you are the people, and with you wisdom will die. <laughs> um, so, And that brings us to where we are this morning in chapter 13. He says, Behold, my eye has seen all this, my ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you. And then in verse 9, he says, Will it be well with well when he examines you? Or will you deceive him as one who deceives a man? See, they've been arguing so carefully through this whole thing that God punishes wickedness. 
And Job is saying, you guys are doing wickedness. You're accusing me wrong, wrongfully. What's going to happen when God examines you? <laughs> and that's, uh, that's one of the first steps about his faith holding on because he, uh, he believes God. Uh, they're not going to get away with respected persons even if it's shown toward God. <laughs> yeah, that's he a good will point. not let them get away with that. <laughs> well, that's strong faith. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they think they're they're defending God, but in fact they're respecting persons. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Um, <clears throat> and Job shows his own trust in this chapter. In verse 15 he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Nevertheless, I will argue my ways before him. So he's not going to give up on God, even though God has done all these terrible things to him. He's not going to give up on God, but he still can't understand, God, you're not being fair to me. <laughs> he, wants to, he wants to have a court case so that he can convince God that this is not right. In verse 21, he says, he's talking to God here, remove your hand from me and let not the dread of you terrify me. And that's the big challenge that humans have in, in having a relationship with God. It just seems like He's, he's just so terrifying. And, and you, you find that over and over in the Old Testament. You remember at, the, at, the, at Mount Sinai the, after the people heard the Ten Commandments, they said, Moses, you go up and listen to God and don't let us have to hear Him again. It's, it's, just, it's just terrifying even to listen to His words. I also want to point out in verse 26, he's still talking to God, he says, For you write bitter things against me and make me to inherit the iniquities of my youth. Job is not claiming he's never sinned. And, and I don't know whether the friends think that he is or not, but Job recognizes that certainly he has, has committed sins too. He repented of them a long time ago, but he's not claiming to be perfect. What he is saying is that the way God is treating him does not match what the friends are saying. The friends are saying that, you know, if you, if you suffer, it's because you're wicked. Of course, they're not suffering. <laughs> They'd have to say the same thing as Job, though. They certainly could look back on iniquities of their youth as well. Yeah. yeah. Getting back to verse 21. Yes. Why did Job want God to remove his hand? Because his hand was what was giving all the suffering. It was the hand of God that was causing the boils. It was the hand of God that had killed his children. It was the hand of God that had wiped out all of his flocks and everything. That's what he means. It's his hand of punishment on him. Yeah. And also yep. this is this is why he despaired of going in and arguing his case because God was so intimidating. Right, yeah. If he if he stands before God in court, you know, God God's hand is gonna just take that away and he'd be able to make his case. Yeah. That's exactly what he's saying. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, good. Um in the next chapter he continues with in the same in the same vein, um, and I want you to notice in verses seven to twelve, Job does not understand about life after death. He says there is hope for a tree when it is cut down that it will sprout again, and we've we've all seen that. You know, you leave a tree stump and then years later, sprouts come out and it starts growing again. And if you didn't want the tree there, you got, you got to chop the new one down. Um, but, he says in verse 10, but man dies and lies prostrate. Man expires and where is he? 
And Job doesn't have any answer for that. Um, but the reason Job is looking at this, and probably the others back then asked the same question, but for Job it becomes a more serious issue because he's seen the vanity of life. He, he expresses that. Uh, in verse verse 1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. It's just a very painful existence. And, and so then he asks, well, and when it's over, then what? And he'd like to know. And, and he doesn't have any answers because, of course, nobody has come back to give the answer. He's seen plenty of people die, but you know, they don't come back and say what, what it's like. Um, so in verse 12, So man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens are no longer, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. That's all, as far as he can tell, that's what happens. But he's going to offer some alternatives later on in the argument. Because in verse 14 he says, if a man dies, will he live again? <laughs> he just got done saying he's not going to, but now he's asking it. In 13, he wishes for such a thing, and then it amazes him to consider what he just said. <laughs> is, is it really true? Yeah. Yeah. And then he says, all the days of my struggle I will wait until my change comes. You will call and I will answer you. You will long for the work of your hands. So he, it's his faith in God that's bringing him to this point. He doesn't think God created him for no purpose. And he doesn't think that his righteousness is just going to be forgotten. And so he says, I would wait. You will call. You will long for the work of your hands. Um, why didn't it's such a good question that Job asked? Why didn't God answer him? Like he answers other people in the Testament. Why did he wait, do you think? God um there's a couple answers to that. Well, I mean one answer is that God had it in his purposes that certain things were going to be revealed at certain times. But the other answer is that the fact that Job didn't know this is a wonderful testimony to God. I mean, think about this. If, if Job had been in our shoes, where we say, well, you know, no matter how much I suffer now, there's heaven to come, then that wouldn't have answered Satan's argument. See, Satan's saying, you know, the only reason you serve God is because you're getting paid. And, and that can still be true for people today that their attitude may be. You know, well, you know, even though you know I'm not doing so hot now, I'll get heaven. That's a good payment, right? But for Job, there was no payment. He lost all the payment in this life. He didn't know about one to come. Satan lost the lost the argument, and and we benefit from that. We read this and we understand God is worthy to be served, whether there's any heaven or hell or anything. God is worthy to be served, and Job is proving that. It's a vindication of God. Yes, and that and that was what what had to happen between in, in that debate. Yeah. Other other questions, thoughts? Yeah, John. Just the second part of uh, verse fifteen: Thou wilt long for the work of thy hand. In the context of considering what will uh, it is physical death, the end. He's suggesting it might not be the end. God would long. Right. That's exactly what he's saying. I be away in Sheol, but. Maybe there will be a time in the future. Yeah. Like yeah. But of course, he doesn't know this. These are things he's he's feeling after. Reasons is what yes. Is what must be That's right. 
That's right. Reasoning on the basis of who God is. Yes, that's it. It's an insight about God. And that's what the whole book is about. It's about the perception or understanding of the righteousness of God. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know a lot of people talk about the book of Job is a book about the the uh, reason for suffering. And I don't think that's that's the case. I think the book really is about um, is God just? I think that's really what the question is. And, and and I think the book applies in situations even very different from Job's. Um, we, we don't have to be suffering a lot to, to maybe wonder if God is just. And we've got to look at the answer it gives at the end. Alright, so now that finishes the first round of the debate. We've had all three friends speak. Job has answered each of them. And now we go to round two. (laughs) Back to Eliphaz again. And Eliphaz is not happy. (laughs) He's not going to be nearly as nice as he was the first time. Um, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he argue with useless talk or with words which are not profitable? (laughs) He does not like this. Um, Were you the first man to be born? He says in verse 7. Or verse 9. What do you know that we do not know? Uh, Now, he makes an argument in verse 14 that he's made before. And I don't understand how this advances his case. Maybe one of you can suggest. But he said this before. What is man that he should be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Now, what he says is perfectly true. Uh, this is chapter 15, verse 14. There is no way that any of us can be righteous before God. I mean really, really righteous. Um, God is so bright that in His presence, we look absolutely black. I don't, the most righteous one you could find. He even says, Behold, He puts no trust in His holy ones. I think He's talking about the angels there. And the heavens are not pure in His sight. Nothing God has created can ever be Righteous as God is righteous. But I don't see how that advances Eliphaz's case because. Well, is he saying that Job you're expecting too much? That you would be declared righteous. But it would prove too much because if that proves that Job has no right to complain about what's happening to him then shouldn't the same thing happen to Eliphaz too? Because he's also a man born of a woman. I mean, if if Job is simply suffering the consequences that everyone suffers because we're all a man born of a woman, none of us can be righteous, then Eliphaz is not explaining why one person is suffering and another is not. And that's what I find just puzzling about the argument. Um, it just... I, he he must have had something in mind, but I don't I don't get it. Um, I just don't, don't see how that helps his case. No. Yeah. He almost condemns himself in, in uh, verse two. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge? Sort of what he was. <laughs> yeah, of course. A lot of times these these friends end up <laughs> unknowingly rebuking themselves. Yeah. Um, so, starting in verse twenty. He, he goes through this, this description of what happens to wicked people. The wicked man writhes in pain all his days. Now, let me ask you this. 
Who does that sound to you like in this book? It sounds like Job, yeah. <laughs> He's not, Eliphaz isn't saying that, but it sure does sound like that. <laughs> um, That's what Job says later on. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And later on, in fact, they, they come right out and just start accusing him of all kinds of things. But um, look in verse 21 sounds of terror are in his ears, while at peace the destroyer comes upon him. Um, or verse 22, he does not believe that he will return from darkness. Job is expecting to die, uh, which death is darkness. Um, so yeah, he's, he's describing Job without using those words. But he's just saying, this is what happens to the wicked person. And again, from, a, from purely from a standpoint of righteousness and justice, that ought to be the thing that happens to wicked people. Now Job's going to come back with an answer a little bit later. But what Eliphaz is saying is the ideal. That's exactly what, what ought to happen. And how often in our own lives have we wished that would happen? We've seen someone doing some terrible thing and, we, and we, we've just said, you know, the, the, that God just ought to bring some very terrible things on this guy. It's just not fair the way He's able to enjoy life like this. Alright, chapter 16. I have heard many such things. Sorry, comforters are you all. <laughs> Is there no limit to windy words? Or what plagues you that you answer? I too could speak like you if I were in your place. I could compose words against you and shake my head at you. I could string... And verse 5, um, the Net Bible translates it a little bit differently. I like it better. It says, But I would strengthen you with my words. Comfort from my lips would bring you relief. And I think that's what he's trying to say. Um, Job's saying, yeah, if I was in your shoes, I could be just like that. But I hope, I sure hope I would be a nicer person and that I would offer words of comfort instead of what you are offering. And in verse 11, Job says, God hands me over to ruffians and tosses me into the hands of the wicked. And isn't it interesting how close that comes to what actually happened? Satan being the ultimate ruffian, the ultimate wicked one. Um, it's still God who does it. The Bible does not teach any hint that Satan is as strong as God and that there's this battle going on and that sometimes Satan's ahead and sometimes God's ahead. The Bible doesn't give that hint, anything like that. God is all-powerful. Nothing can happen apart from God. And Job is right. He's handed Job over to ruffians. And he, and he describes his, you know, in very poetic language, he describes his sad condition. And he says in verse 18, O earth, do not cover my blood, and let there be no resting place for my cry. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my advocate is on high. He's confident that God in heaven is a witness to his righteousness. Even if they don't see it now. God, His witness is in heaven, and it's God. Another expression is faith. Yes, yes, He understands the character of God, and His, his friends don't, unfortunately. Yeah. <clears throat> How much do we want to make a person the word advocate? You're thinking of Jesus, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's a number of Job statements that really are finally fulfilled in Jesus. He's the advocate we do have on high. 
But it's not the way, it's not quite the way Job thinks about it. I mean, Job is wanting an umpire that can go in between them, and Jesus is, of course, a mediator. It's not a prediction of him. No, no but it is a, it is expressing the need for him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and um, but Jesus has not come as someone to kind of hold God back, and you know, God, you know, don't be quite so rough as that. I mean, Jesus is God Himself. And, and Jesus is simply expressing the heart of God in a way that we can, we can understand. We, we, can't, we can't understand it nearly as well when, when God appears in His full glory and, and we're just blinded by the light. We can understand it when He appears in the form of a, a human being and looks like one of us. And, that, and that's, of course, that's the answer to Job's needs. Um, now, in the next chapter, in chapter 17, Job then talks to God, and, and in verse starting in verse three, lay down now a pledge for me with yourself. Who is there that will be my guarantor? He's, he's again talking in legal language. Uh, let's go to court, and each of us lay down a pledge for this. Um, but in verse five, he who informs against friends for a share of the spoil, the eyes of his children also will languish. He's talking about the three friends and how they're behaving toward him. Um, and in verse 12, talking about the friends, he still says, they make night into day saying the light is near in the presence of darkness. Job is saying, the only future for me is death. It's darkness. And these guys are making light into day like saying, well, Job, if you'll just appeal to God, He'll, he'll restore you. And he's saying it's, that, that's not the case at all. So in chapter 18, then, we have the next of the three friends, his second turn, Bildad. And... Um, He's pretty annoyed. In verse 3, Why are we regarded as beasts, as stupid in your eyes? <laughs> and in verse 4, O oh, you who tear yourself in your anger, for your sake is the earth to be abandoned or the rock to be moved from its place? Bildad's view is that if, if Job's arguments stand, then the whole moral order of the earth is going to crumble. If God is not just, and in Bildad's view, God can't be just if Job is righteous because God's punished Job terribly. And if Job's ideas are, are correct, the whole earth is going to crumble. That's what, that's what Bildad thinks. And so that's why he simply cannot accept Job's arguments. Yeah, Ellie. Or, uh, or if, if, uh, if the whole moral order has to be set aside in order for... Job can be declared right. Yeah, that's what Bill that thinks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The earth, the rock, the removed out of his place. So you can be. Yeah. Justified. Yeah. Nothing else matters. What Bill does think is nothing else matters except you, Job. You know, and it's not going to work that way. Um, so he he repeats his. Um, his previous arguments in verse five. Indeed, the light of the wicked goes out. And the flame of his fire gives no light. And, and so we've had this before, of course. He's just trying to insist that wicked people end up being destroyed. And of course, he again describes it in a way that it sounds an awful lot like Job's situation. He wants Job to, to repent and understand that what's happened to Job is because he's wicked. So then in chapter 19, then, 
Job says, How long will you torment me and crush me with words? These ten times you have insulted me. You are not ashamed to wrong me. Even if I have truly erred, my error lodges with me. And what he's saying is, you haven't shown me a thing that I've done wrong. If I, if I did sin, you haven't figured it out. And he, and he doesn't think he has, of course. Um, and then in verses 7-12, through 12, we have a very poignant description of his suffering. Um, well, the things God has done to him and, and um, how miserable he is. Um, but in verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in the book that with an iron stylus and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. What he's saying is, I know I'm righteous. One of these days, people will realize this. And I want my words to be inscribed where they can't be erased so that people will know in the future Job was right. <laughs> yes, that's right. He says in verse 25, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will take His stand on the earth. You have to understand what Redeemer meant to Job. Um, the, this is, the Redeemer was the, the near relative. In the book of Ruth, we had this. The near relative who, if you get become impoverished, He can rescue you. If you're having to sell your, your um, heritage, your, your land... The Redeemer can step in and, and buy it to keep it in the family. Or if you get murdered, the Redeemer comes along and at that point He becomes the avenger of blood and He takes vengeance on the person that killed you. That's the job of the near relative, the Redeemer. And Job wants, he wants a near relative, a Redeemer, that is powerful like God is. And so he says, I know I have one. At the last, he'll take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. He says, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Now, he's really moving forward in his, his beliefs about what's going to happen after he dies. To say that after his skin is destroyed, yet from his flesh he'll see God, whom I myself shall behold and whom my eyes will see and not another. So he's, he's still looking for justice and he expects justice to happen, but he doesn't think it will happen in this life. He, and, and it's not that he has any revelation about this. It, it's based on his understanding of who God is. Right. It has yes. to be. Yeah. If not now, then sometime, because God is judged. The, the suffering that God has allowed to come upon him has caused him to think things through much more than he would ever without it. And then when Jesus comes and he shows that Job's instinct was exactly right. Yes. Right. Yes, exactly, exactly. And then we find, and we have in chapter twenty, we have Zophar, um, and he's the third of the friends. This is the, almost to the end of the second round. Um, he says in verse three, "I listen to the reproof which insults me, and the spirit of my understanding makes me answer." These guys are just getting stuck. I mean, Job keeps saying these things, and it. it it hurts. And they don't like to lose their, their argument. Um, so he explains in verse 5, the triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless momentary. He, he recognizes, yeah, you know, if you just take a snapshot, it might look like the, this wicked person is doing okay, but pretty quickly it turns around. God isn't going to let him go on like that. Um, and so, in his description, he talks about all the bad things that happen to him, you know, he, he's he's such a wicked person, but 
bad things happen. And verse 29, he summarizes, this is the wicked man's portion from God, even the heritage decreed to him by God. And you get put in parentheses, and Job, that's why it's happening to you. <laughs> in chapter 21, we have the most complete answer that Job has yet given, and I think it's the most complete answer he is going to give, about this one issue. Does God always punish the wicked? And, and he really deals with it in, in this chapter. Um, he says in verse 7, Why do the wicked still live, continue on, also become very powerful? Their descendants are established with them in their sight, and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and the rod of God is not on them. Now he's not describing every wicked person. All of us have seen wicked people who have clearly been destroyed because of their wickedness. And when we saw that, we thought, that's justice. But we've also seen what he's talking about here. We've seen people who get rich by wickedness. And then they die a peaceful death and their children inherit all their money. And they live wickedly and do just fine too. <laughs> we've seen that happen. Um, but it's a very poetic, you know, very, very elegant way to express it here. Um, and then finally, verse 17, this is not finally, verse 17, how often is the lamp of the wicked put out or does their calamity fall on them? How often? And the answer is, not always. And so then he, he, he says in verse 19, you say, now it's, it's not, the you say has been added by the translators, but I think it's correct. He's, he say, he's suggesting, here's the argument you're going to say, ah, well God stores away a man's iniquity for his sons. Yeah, maybe he did die a peaceful death, but God's going to visit on his sons. Let God repay him so that he may know it. <laughs> Job says, what good does that do? Uh, let his own eyes see his decay. Let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. For what does he care for his household after him when the number of his months is cut off? <laughs> so he's saying, you know, folks, that doesn't answer it. If the guy dies a peaceful death and he was wicked his whole life, you just lost your argument. <laughs> That's what Job is saying. <clears throat> Let's see here. Um, 27 is where he said, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I know your thoughts and the plans by which you would wrong me. <laughs> yeah. So he concludes in verse 34, How then will you vainly comfort me for your answers remain full of falsehood. And now we begin the last round, the third round, and Eliphaz begins. And he makes a strange argument. Um, in verse 3, well, verse 2, can a vigorous man be of use to God or a wise man be useful to himself? Is there any pleasure to the Almighty if you are righteous or profit if you make your ways perfect? Now, think about it. In one sense, what he's saying is correct. God does not need me. God does not need any of us. When I do the absolute best I can, when I do the most marvelous things, and you could come up with a wonderful list of things I might do, God is no different than He was if I hadn't done it. God is complete in and of Himself. He does not need us. We are His creatures. 
I mean, in, in, one, in, one of the, in one Old Testament passage, God says, you know, if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. And, and so Eliphaz is speaking correctly here when he says, what does it add to God if you do good? His conclusion is, is a little bit hard to follow. It's a little bit of a strange one. But it appears to me that what he's saying is that if God is so separate from His creation, He's not helped by righteous or hurt by the wicked, then why would He do anything other than be perfectly just? I mean, it's not like you're going to bribe Him for anything. It's not like He's benefiting by it. All God would do because He's so removed from His creation is simply be a just God. And if He's just, wicked people get punished and righteous people get rewarded. <laughs> so He's saying in verse 4, is it because of your reverence that He reproves you that He enters into judgment against you? In other words, if God is like we're saying, then why would He treat you like this, Job? Why would it... If you're reverent, would He treat you like this? That doesn't make any sense. And so, he draws some conclusions. Now, these conclusions are nothing. None of what he says about Job in the rest of the chapter is anything he's seen with his own eyes. He's simply drawing a conclusion based upon the fact that Job is suffering. Knowing that God is just, and that God would certainly never distort justice, Job's being punished terribly, so Job must be a terrible person. And so he suggests in verse five, 6, you have taken pledges of your brothers without cause. Um, to, you have stripped men naked. To the weary you have given no water to drink and from the hungry you have withheld bread. Now that's, I mean, he's accusing of very terrible things. He's slandering the man. The typical sins of a bitch. Yeah, we've we've certainly seen plenty of people that have behaved this way um, in a, in a, in our own country. I mean, the the people that were were selling these uh, what the what are called predatory home mortgages, just taking advantage of poor people just so they could line their pockets. I mean, this is exactly what this is describing. Now, Job is going to answer this later on, not not in, in this week, but later on, he's going to answer this. But understand that Eliphaz is sinning here. He is sinning against Job because his philosophy just does not allow for what is actually happening. And we need to be careful. This can happen to us too. We can have, a, we can have certain views which we think are Bible-based and yet we can end up slandering good people. Um, and so he goes on about how, how terrible the things that Job is is that he's done. And then in um, starting in verse 21, he says, Yield now and be at peace with them. And from to the end of the chapter, he appeals to Job to cast himself upon God. And it's a wonderful piece of advice for somebody else. <laughs> it just doesn't fit Job. And so finally in chapter 24, Job is very puzzled. Um, um, why does God ignore the, the sins of His creatures? Um, and He describes these people, and, and it's even stronger than it was before. I mean, they drive away the donkeys of the orphans. 
They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They push the needy aside from the road. The poor of the land are made to hide themselves altogether. And he goes on and he describes how these poor people are having to slave for these rich people. They're going hungry while they're gathering the sheaves for the rich guy. They'd love to have some of that food themselves. Um, and yet, nothing happens to them. Where, where is the justice? Um, and he finally concludes in verse 25, Now, if it's not so, who can prove me a liar and make my speech worthless? And we'll take up with that next week. You gotta wait till God gives the answer at the end of the book. <laughs> what? Yeah, it's only two weeks.